Good morning. It's a joy and a blessing and an honor to be in front of you this morning. I know most of you, but I'm sure there are some here that I don't know and that don't know me. If you don't know me, I'm Andrew Van Engen. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at CTW. And each time Pastor David or Pastor Nathan have asked me to preach, it's a weighty responsibility, but it is a joy and privilege to do it. Now, most of you know that I grew up in Southern California. My birthday is in December, so the last half of my senior year in high school, I was 18 years old, and I was legally allowed to write my own school excuse notes, since I was technically an adult. So a friend of mine was able to do this as well. And we both just had one class after lunch, and for me, it was AP Biology. Now, I know many of you are in the medical field and have probably had to take many classes in biology. For me, it was my senior year, the last class of the day. I didn't really enjoy biology, and I really wasn't studying that hard in this class. So every other Friday, my friend and I would have lunch, grab our surfboards, and drive down to Newport Beach and go surfing. Man, did we think we were cool. We were living the California dream. So the first time I was able to write my own excuse note, I thought, okay, how am I going to word this? I didn't want to lie, so what was I going to say? So finally, something came to mind, and again, being an 18-year-old man, I I thought I was very, very smart. So I said, you know, I wasn't there because I wasn't in, in fifth period AP biology because I was sick of it. See, I wasn't actually sick, but I was sick of it, right? So being an 18-year-old man, I thought I was so cool and so smart. I wasn't. I was just prideful and stupid, but I thought I was cool and smart. So I was sick of it. Now, you young people don't do what I did. Honor the commitments that you have where God has placed you. Be diligent to go to school, go to class, do your work, do what you've been called to do. What I did was prideful and stupid. And often when you're doing something to look cool and smart to the world, it's usually prideful and stupid. So my friend and I would go and surf. And I met a lot of surfers on those Fridays. And I got called Hoss a lot. What are you doing here, Hoss? What kind of board you got there, Hoss? Aren't you a little big to be out here, Hoss? See, most of these surfers were about five feet and about 100 pounds so they could get up on their board very quickly. Most of them didn't own a pair of closed-toed shoes. They lived with like 10 other guys in a small house. Uh, Their personal grooming and hygiene standards were tended to be a little lax. Um, And they used the words dude and bro in every sentence. Now, clearly, I'm not a surfer. And I wasn't 25 years ago. I was a big, goofy guy who played football and was really, really bad at surfing. If you ever want a humbling experience, go surfing for just one day in six-foot waves in the Pacific Ocean, and I guarantee you'll spend more time in the water than you will on your surfboard. But for those surfers that I met, surfing was everything to them. Everything they did was focused on surfing. Their jobs, their time, their money, everything they talked about was wrapped up in surfing. They were so committed to it that they hoped that at some point in their life they'd be recognized as such a great surfer that they'd be able to get paid lots of money and travel the world just to surf. Well, that didn't happen, or it happened for nobody that I knew. Now, a few weeks ago, my extended family, we rented a house in the Outer Banks uh, in North Carolina. 
and we spent a lot of time at the beach. It was a great time, great, and I was trying to teach my two older children, Adele and Isaiah, how to boogie board. See, the concept is the same as surfing. You catch a wave and ride it in on your board, and you enjoy that time, and then you go out and do it again. But timing and commitment are very important to catching a wave. Now, your timing includes the placement of where you are at the water, how you have your board set up, what the waves are doing right then, and being aware of what others are doing around you so you don't run into them. And your commitment is important as well. See, if you commit to a wave too early, it's going to crash right on top of you, and you're going to get crunched, and it's going to hurt. But if you commit too late, you're going to miss the wave completely, and that could have been a really, really sweet ride. So these are the two things I'd like to focus on this morning, timing and commitment. Our scripture passage this morning is a great picture of timing and commitment. So our passage this morning comes from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. Please open your Bibles to Acts 16 and please stand for the reading of God's holy word. This is Acts 16, 22, verses 22 through 34. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Ah, amen. Please raise your hands and pray with me. Father God, you are sovereign over all things. Lord, you love us so much, more than we deserve. We thank you for this. Lord, thank you for this, your word and this written story that we have of salvation through Jesus that you've given us. Lord, as we look to you this morning, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. So as I said, our passage today is a picture of timing and commitment. Now let me give you some background of what is recorded here in Acts. Earlier in the book, the Lord Jesus speaks to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. 
See, he had been one of the main persecutors of the way. That was what the Christian church was called earlier based on Jesus' saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, Paul is persecuting the way, the Christian church. And he becomes a real believer in Jesus Christ on this road to Damascus. Now, he then goes and ministers to the church in Antioch. And from there, he goes on his first missionary journey with Barnabas. And then he returns to Jerusalem in Acts 15 to report what God had done on this first journey. They then go back to Antioch to continue to minister to the church there, and God sends him on a second missionary journey and takes Silas with him. So they go up through Asia Minor, what's now modern-day Turkey, and make their way to Macedonia to the city of Philippi. Now, Philippi was no backwards town. It wasn't like Mayberry. Okay. Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia, but Philippi was a close second. It had been named after the father of Alexander the Great, King Philip II of Macedon. And it was located on a main trade route, a main road between Greek and Asia Minor. And much trade happened there, and there was much wealth there as well. It was also set up as a Roman colony. See, 70 years prior to the Apostle Paul visiting the city, a great Roman military battle had occurred right there in Philippi. And Caesar Augustus decided to set up the city to be like a little Rome. So Roman soldiers who had completed their 25 years of service were given a piece of land around Philippi as their retirement gift. These soldiers were also given Roman citizenship, which came with many privileges that others didn't have. They could own land, they could vote, they could appeal judicial sentences, and as a Roman colony, they were exempt from many taxes. So the Apostle Paul and Silas come to Philippi and start talking to the Jews of the city. Now, there wasn't any synagogue there. The the population was so small, they didn't have a synagogue, so they would go to the river and talk and pray. And while the Apostle Paul and Silas are speaking to these people, the Lord gives a Gentile woman, Lydia, who's there with them, faith in Jesus Christ, and she becomes the first Christian in Europe. Then as they're speaking to others in Philippi, a different young woman who has an evil spirit is constantly following them around and yelling, these men serve the real God, and they're telling you how to be saved. Well, finally, after several days of this, the Apostle Paul has had enough. And he cast the evil spirit out of her. Well, her masters have now had enough of these two men. See, when they first came to Philippi, they were probably just an annoyance. But now they're hurting their pocketbooks. See, these men made money off this young lady and what she said. So they drag the apostle Paul and Silas to the local judges, and they have them beaten and imprisoned. Now, this is not like your regular prison cell. They're taken to the innermost part and put into shackles. It was probably dark, dingy, and those shackles were not made for comfort. They were made to inflict pain. So in my position with the government, I visit a lot of prisons, and our constitution says that no one shall suffer cruel and unusual punishment. Federal prison is often given the nickname of three hots and a cot. You're given three meals a day and a place to stay. And some places are even called club fed, like it's some type of country club that you might want to go, telling you you don't. Okay? I can tell you that you don't want to go to a prison here in, in, our, in, in our country 
And during the Roman Empire, you really didn't want to go to Roman prison. See, the Roman prison was often meant specifically to be cruel and unusual as punishment, as a deterrent to keep the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, throughout the empire. So the Apostle Paul and Silas are in Philippi. They're in prison. They're in shackles. And they're beaten and bloody. And then suddenly an earthquake happens. Now this isn't just a jolt. Our passage tells us that this earthquake shook the very foundations of the prison and caused all the prison cell doors to fly open. Now, growing up in Southern California, I I experienced some some earthquakes as well. I remember a big one, the Northridge earthquake. I'd just gotten home from school, and the house started shaking. And you're told as early on that the strongest part of your house is a doorway, so when an earthquake happens, go and run into your doorway and stay there. So I ran to my bedroom doorway, and I looked down the hall, and my hallway carpet is doing this. Now, I imagine the earthquake mentioned in our passage here was even more powerful and frightening. All the jail doors were opened, and all the chains of the prisoners were unfastened. Now, the story we have here is just one story that we have recorded to us in Scripture that show God's perfect timing of salvation. Now, God's perfect timing often includes hard things. These two men, the Apostle Paul and Silas, have just experienced a tough situation. There are numerous other examples in Scripture of this as well. God gave Abraham hard things to deal with, leaving his home, walking over a thousand miles to a new land he knew nothing about, God promising he'd have a son, he and Sarah, making them wait 25 years for that son, and then later on instructing him to sacrifice that son. Or how about Joseph, being sold into slavery by his brothers, a slave, then in prison, and then being raised up as second in command of all of Egypt. Or what about Ruth, losing her husband, following her mother-in-law back to Israel, and then working in the field to harvest grain, and there being seen by Boaz? Or what about the thief on the cross? He is paying the penalty that he justly deserves for what he did, and that is where he meets Jesus. Or what about the man healed by the pool of Bethesda who'd been lame his whole life? Or the woman with the hemorrhage of 12 years that we heard about last week? The Lord God ordained all these difficult situations and circumstances. Think about your life today. This past week, this past month, this past year. What things has God ordained in your life to put you here right now today? In my life, I think about how I went to college in West Michigan instead of Southern California. I wanted to go to Pepperdine University and surf in Malibu. What 18-year-old goes from Southern California to West Michigan? Who does that? Usually, it's the 70-year-olds going the opposite direction. I think of the job of the youth pastor that I applied for after graduation that I didn't get that pushed me into law enforcement, which then took us to Washington, D.C., then transferred to Toledo, Ohio. I think of our first year here at Christ the Word Church and our small group where every family dealt with some type of crisis that year. I think of having breakfast with Pastor David and his exhortation for me to consider being a pastor and then going through the REPC, which is a hard thing. 
See, all of those things the Lord ordained for me to be here right now, this morning. What about your life? Now, I know this past year has been especially hard one for our church family. We've dealt with and continue to deal with sickness, with pain, with loss, with death. Hard situations in our marriages, in our jobs, with our children, our relatives, our friends. The Lord uses these things to draw us to Him and to show us our need that we have for Him. To show us that He is God and we are not. And we need the saving faith that He graciously gives us. See, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 about the hardships that he endured. States, for we do not know, we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even to life. Indeed, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so we could not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. See, the Apostle Paul recognized that those hard things were so that they would rely on God and not themselves. In our passage, God ordained all these things for the Apostle Paul and Silas so that they were there right at the perfect time to minister to this man. God's timing is perfect, and the circumstances are perfect too. Often it's very hard for understand why on this side of eternity, but God is weaving the perfect tapestry of life for each of us. Nothing is a mistake. Nothing is a net negative for the children of God. Now, it doesn't always mean that we always feel that way, but rest assured and take comfort in knowing that God is taking perfect care of you. We're blessed to know that these hardships are temporary. We're blessed to know that this earth is not our home. And if we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, then we know that our home is in heaven and in eternal glory with him. And our struggles here are to draw us to him so that we see his love for us. Now, God's perfect timing teaches us patience, endurance, and joy during hard times. In God's goodness to us, he blesses us while we're in the middle of struggles. Trusting him through these hard things increases our ability to deal and have faith with other difficult issues going forward. Now, we often want things to be done in our own timing. But the Lord's timing is not ours. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit and something we must all pursue. We want things right this minute, and God often tells us to wait. I remember when we buried our first daughter, Arabella. My mom, after the funeral, said, you know, we don't know what God will do a year from now. And almost a year to that day later, God blessed us with our second daughter. See, in our passage, these two men are beaten and bloody. They're in stocks in a Philippian jail. And how did they respond? They're complaining about how they're treated. They're sulking in anger over how they got there. They're frustrated that their friends haven't bailed them out yet. No. They are praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And who's listening to them? Our passage says that the other prisoners are listening to them. And I'm sure our Philippian jailer was listening to them as well. 
See, someone is always watching and listening. Our response to hard things is seen by those around us, by our family, our friends, our children, our coworkers, even strangers. Many times I've seen God strengthen the faith of others here because of how they've seen another person respond to something difficult. My faith has been strengthened by how I've seen many of you deal with pain and suffering. So through these things, God does teach us patience, endurance, and joy. God's perfect timing is for the good of his children. In God's sovereign plan, the Apostle Paul and Silas were meant to go through all of that, all these things, so that this man and his household would come to true living faith. While it was physically painful for these two men, the Lord placed them there at the exact moment to be his instruments in this jailer and his household coming to faith. Through God's perfect timing, we see his love and commitment to us. First and foremost, we see God's commitment to us through his son, Jesus Christ. The story of redemption, the story of how God rescues his people, is given to us in his word. See, from Genesis to Revelation, from the creation of the world and the first sin of Adam to the end of the world, we have the story of how God loves and commits himself to his people through his son, Jesus. God sent his one and only son, begotten son, to pay the penalty that we owe to God because of our sins. And Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, the spotless lamb of God, who comes to take the sins of the world and the sins of you and me. And though we suffer here, we aren't alone. God exposed himself to that suffering voluntarily so that ultimately we can be freed from all suffering here and live with him in eternity. So in our passage, we see the Lord revealed to the jailer that he needed to be saved. The jailer's about to kill himself because that would have been better than the suffering he would, be, he would receive if it was found out that all the prisoners had escaped on his watch. The Apostle Paul cries out and lets him know that no one had escaped. At that moment, the jailer knows he's missing something. Something in his life is off. He knows he needs to be saved and asks a question of all questions. What must I do to be saved? Then through the Apostle Paul and Silas' answer and teaching, he and his whole family come to true saving faith in Jesus Christ. See, the Lord revealed to him that there was something missing in his life, that he needed to be rescued. He recognized there was a hole in his soul that needed to be filled and needed to be filled right now. And as we're all born in sin, we all have that same need to be rescued, that same missing piece, that same hole in our souls. See, the jailer was humble enough to ask what he needed to be saved, to ask what he needed to fill that hole. It's the question of all questions, and I hope each one of us here have asked the same question. What must I do to be saved? God gives us the answer through the Apostle Paul and Silas. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. See, other religions say do this, do that, and hopefully at the end you will have done enough good deeds to overcome all the bad. Islam tells you to complete the five pillars of Islam, to pray five times a day, to make a journey to Mecca, to fast during Ramadan, to give to the poor, and hopefully all those things outweigh the bad that you've done. Hinduism says to make sacrifices, to go bathe in the Ganges River, 
to follow all the rules that they make, and that you will be reincarnated, remade to a higher state of life, and maybe after a series of those higher lives, you'll be saved. Mormonism tells us to be, tells you to be as physically perfect as you can here on earth, and you might attain to the level of God. Catholicism says to complete the works that the church instructs, and you will be saved. The problem with all those things is that they look to things that we can achieve to earn entrance into heaven based on our own works. And this is what the jailer was doing. He likely knew that he would be responsible for the prisoners. He knew that he'd be held responsible for their escape, and so he was willing to pay the penalty for himself. The Bible says the opposite. It says that we've all messed up too badly to pay the penalty for our own sins. The Apostle Paul responds to his question about how he could be saved by saying, look, you can't do that. You can't save yourself. You've done messed up too badly to do anything to fix it yourself. But the wonderful news is that though you can't do anything, you can believe in the love, kindness, and power of God for you. Only Jesus can save you. Only Jesus can pay what you owe. This is what he was sent to do, to pay this penalty for us as a perfect sacrifice to God. So the Lord's commitment to us is shown through the life and work of Jesus Christ. Now the Greek word here that's used in this passage for save is sozo. It's the same word that's used in most of the New Testament when it speaks of salvation. The literal translation means to be rescued from a terrible condition. Now, it's the same word that was used in Mark 5 from our passage last week with the woman with the 12-year-old hemorrhage. When she touched Jesus, her faith made her well. It saved her. She was saved. She was sozoed by faith in Jesus. She was rescued by Jesus from the terrible condition that she was in physically, and she was rescued by Jesus from the terrible condition of her soul. Just like her in our passage today, the jailer is saved. He's sozoed. He was rescued from physical and spiritual death by God's love for him through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, my children recently watched the documentary, The Rescue. Some of you may have seen it. It's the story of a soccer team of young men in Thailand who go exploring in some caves with their assistant coach. And a huge storm comes and starts filling all these caves with massive amounts of water. They end up being trapped in this little cave, and there's no way out. They have little food and water to drink. And really, if they're not rescued, death is their only option, either by salvation or by drowning. Well, a huge rescue operation is put into place. All all these people from around the world come and volunteer to help them get out. And it was estimated that over 10,000 people had something to do with this rescue operation. They get British cave divers and Air Force pararescue personnel to help plan this rescue mission, and they're able to get all 13 people, all 13 young men, out of that cave safe and sound. See, that team was rescued from the terrible condition of this cave and delivered to life. It's an incredible story. The story given to us here about this Philippian jailer this morning is even better than that. The jailer was rescued from a terrible condition. When you're rescued from a terrible condition, it means that you're delivered to a much better one. The Lord saved this man's physical life and his soul, and the Lord delivered him to eternal life. 
The Lord's commitment is shown to us through his son Jesus. Now, God's commitment is shown to us through others as well. It includes our church family and our immediate families. Both the bride of Christ, our church family, and our immediate families are blessings given to us by God. He gives us one another to help support, encourage, and exhort each other. The Lord used the most unlikely means for this jailer to come to salvation. The Lord used the hardships of the Apostle Paul and Silas to bring salvation to this man and his family. Who is the Lord bringing to you that needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ? What about someone that needs help, that needs encouragement, that needs exhortation? I guarantee there's someone. Now, with God's love and commitment given to us, our response in commitment to him is necessary. Only the, only the Lord can save us, but he expects us to then turn to him as well. Our commitment to God grows our love for him. Our commitment to God leads us to wanting to know more, to spend more time in his word, to be with others in worship together, to obey his commands. It's often the chicken and the egg scenario. Our commitment to God grows love for him, and our love for him increases our desire to commit to the things of God. See, the jailer heard their first message, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. But he wanted to hear more. So he brought the Apostle Paul and Silas into his house to hear the word of the Lord. He knew a little bit, but he wanted to know more. Over the next couple weeks, we have many ministries starting up here at CTW. If you haven't already, I exhort and encourage you to commit yourselves to a Bible study, to a small group, to a Truth in Life class, to a WANA. Make a commitment to the Lord and you will see your love for Him grow. See, our commitment to God grows our love for Him. We also see the powerful influence that commitment to God can have on others around us. Our commitments are shown through real action. You can often tell a person's commitment by their calendar and their pocketbook, what they spend their time and their money on. See, the commitment of those surfers was obvious to everyone. Surfing consumed everything they had, their money, their time, everything. Who, what they talked about, who their friends were, all that they had. If someone looked at your calendar and your pocketbook, what would they say you're committed to? Fathers and mothers, what would your children say you were committed to if asked? They often do the things that we want to do. They listen to the same music we like. They play the same sports that we do. And they often commit to the same things that we will. Are we leading our families in our commitment to the Lord? We just sang, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Do our words and actions match up to our commitment to the Lord? Do we talk and show how important this is to those around us? See, our commitment to God also solidifies our faith through real action. The jailer went out and was baptized. Now, this act didn't save him, just like it doesn't save us, but it's a real sign and seal of true faith in Jesus Christ. Not only the jailer was baptized, but also his whole family. And his concern for others didn't stop there either. He goes and cares for the Apostle Paul and Silas as well. He washes and cares for their wounds. He brings them into his house. He feeds them. See, our love and actions toward others 
show our commitment to God because he commands us to do this, to love one another, to love our neighbor. And so our commitment to God is shown through this care for others. Lastly, our commitment to God builds our hope towards the future. If the Lord has saved us, has rescued us from a terrible condition, then we've been delivered to an even greater condition. In fact, the greatest condition possible. Through Jesus Christ, we've been delivered from the condition of sin and death and the condition to eternal life with the Lord. And in this life, if the Lord has saved us through Jesus Christ, we've been saved from being slaves to sin to being free to righteousness. Before, we were unable to loose the shackles of sin, but now we've been set free and able to follow God. Now, most of you know my dad. He's been here and preached here several times. And if you spent much time around him, you know that he's a very good storyteller. See, he and my mom were missionaries in southern Mexico for 12 years, and then he taught at Fuller Seminary for over 25. Now, I think part of him being such a good storyteller was to keep his seminary students awake during his class, uh, but he has a lot of interesting stories. And if you ever get a chance, just go up to him and, t- and ask him what his most interesting story of being a missionary was. Every time I've heard someone ask that, I've heard something different. So when they're here, do that. But growing up with him, with he and my mom, we'd often have seminary students over to our home for meals. And at times, I was blessed to travel with my dad to other countries. And often, his second or third comment to the person he's talking to, man or woman, would be, tell me your story. Now, he didn't mean where you grew up or what school you went to or or what you were doing tomorrow. What he meant was, tell me the story of how the Lord saved you. See, each of us here this morning who are followers of Jesus have a great story to tell, just like the Philippian jailer. At some point in our lives, God led us to ask the same question, what must I do to be saved? And God used his word, a pastor, a teacher, a friend, a parent, maybe a stranger, to give us the same answer that the Apostle Paul and Silas gave. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You look back at your life, and you see the point when that occurred. See, we were slaves to sin, and then God opened our eyes and our hearts to our need of Jesus, and he rescued us, and he changed us, and everything was different, and you were able to turn away from your sin and pursue holiness. Just like the Philippian jailer, in that moment, your whole life has changed. Praise the Lord. Your story is important. Who do you tell your story to? Do your friends, your family, your coworkers know how God has changed you? What He's done and is doing in your life? They should. Tell them your story. Come tell me your story. I want to hear how God has changed you and what He's doing. Now, if you're here this morning, and you don't yet know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, maybe you have a different story. Maybe you're here this morning, and you feel like you're in the middle of an ocean with no surfboard, and the hard waves of life just keep crashing on top of you, and you can hardly breathe. Maybe you feel like you've just been through a huge earthquake, and you don't know what to do. God has brought you here for a specific reason. His timing's perfect. If you don't know Christ, 
I encourage you, I implore you, do what the Philippian jailer did. In true humility, ask what you need to be saved, and then believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will rescue you. He will change you. He will deliver you. He will save your life. God's timing is perfect. His commitment to those he loves is perfect, and he calls us to commit to him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Let's pray.